Okay, well, grab a seat and your Bible and um, open with me tonight to the book of Hosea. So the book of Hosea. And Hosea, my friend Jason said that he's in no hurry to get home so we can go extra long tonight. So we might, we'll go through an extra couple chapters. But can you, can you imagine, can you, do, you know, have you, have you heard about when, when the man had to go down to, um, you know, the central market in the middle of the town where, where they were having the latest auction. And there, he didn't go just to see what was going on. He didn't go just to see what is the going raid or, or maybe just to meet up with a couple friends because he was bored. But this man went down to buy back his wife who, who has continually forsaken him and committing adultery, going after other lovers, having other affairs, seeking and having intimacy, right, with another. And I'm, you know, this might sound like it's the latest uh, TV drama that's just about to release. A lot of what's out today. But this is the Word of God, and that's what we talked about in chapters 1 through 3. We saw Hosea, whose name means salvation, and this prophet of God whom the Lord called, and he said, Jose, I want you to marry a harlot. Uh, one, your, your wife is going to commit adultery. She's going to, to have relations with another. And I want you to go, even though she, she knows it's wrong, she, she, right? Israel, they have the law. God said that you're not to commit adultery. But Hosea, she's going to keep going, and she's going to continually go after these other lovers, but I want you to go, and I want you to take her back. I want you to, in fact, not just take her back, but pursue her, right? And that's what we looked at. He, he would go to the market, and he would buy her back for 15 shekels of silver and a barley, or excuse me, a, a, um, for some, some barley there, right? One and a half homers of barley, but why would the Lord do this? He's not trying to be, quote-unquote, like cool or relevant to maybe what would attract people in culture today, right? But he says that this is the heart. This is my heart. And you, and you hear that. Like, how could God ask a prophet? How could he ask this man to go and, and, and to reconcile, not only reconcile, but bring back into his home? To, to give up all that he had, it would seem. That's why he could only pay 15 shekels and, 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 and some barley for it. But the Lord's saying that this is what my people are doing to me. They, they're going after other lovers. They're going after other gods. And we looked at last week, really, we talked about the Lord said in his word, remember, that in Israel going after other lovers was them pursuing idols, and we talked about what an idol is. If you remember, an idol is anything in your life, in, in my life, that if you think that it's taken away, I couldn't even imagine living if that thing was taken away, that person, whatever it may be, if I was put in that situation, right? Well, if that's, if that's my heart response, and if we're honest, we all have some idols, I do. You see, God allows that to be an indicator, and he wants us to turn from idols, from anything else that would have um, an affection, not just that is greater than him, that even is comparable to him. And so 
we come to chapter 4, and in chapters 4 through 14, uh, this is the rest of the book now, is a picture of Israel and the Lord. We looked at in chapters 1 through 3, if you weren't here, you can grab the tape from last week, but that, that was Hosea the prophet and his life message and what he was living out, but now the Lord is going to address Israel directly. And then in chapters 4 through 8, the Lord, it, he addresses the sin of Israel This is his prosecution or his charge against Israel. Now you might say, and and kind of like, you know, I'm I'm sitting here thinking through this as I'm studying. It can feel a little bit redundant. Like, Lord, we just, you just told us this, right? In chapters one through three, I get the picture. Why do you now have to lay all this out in detail? Why why spend all these chapters formally bringing this charge and and directly addressing the sin issues in, in Israel? Well, here's, you know, as I was just thinking about it, this helped me kind of maybe to grasp the heart of the Lord a little bit more. Imagine if you were maybe just an an onlooker of Hosea and Gomer and and that whole kind of knowing, right? Maybe you have some proximity to the situation and you know what's been going on. And and you hear, right, you're talking to Hosea afterwards after he buys um, Gomer back at at the market because she sold herself to uh, sexual sin, right, to other lovers. And, and, and Hosea says, man, she says she didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> she didn't go after other lovers. She's, that's just made up. And that's, that's what she would be saying. You'd look at her and you'd probably say, are you off your rocker? Like, what, what universe do you live in? Because it's not this one, right? It's obvious her sin was blatant. She had other children to other people. See, that's what the Lord's saying. That's why he, I think he spends these chapters to go into detail to show Israel the, the charge that he, he's bringing against them. Because even though that they had the reality of the prophet and, and his wife, and they saw that life lived out, and, and that was them firsthand, I think they were still saying, that's not me. I don't go after other lovers, Lord. That's those other people. Do you see that? And so, you know, the, the self-righteousness in me wants to try to squirm out of it, right? And not let Lord, the Lord address sin in my life. Well, we'll we're going to look at that tonight. But I think that's the situation, kind of the context, the bigger picture, why the Lord would take um, several more chapters to go over this. So, right, we could agree Gomer is guilty, but are we willing to agree what, in, with what the Lord calls sin in our life? That's question number one for us tonight. You know, I can say I, maybe a sin in others, but am I willing to sit and, and let the Lord lovingly convict and correct sin in my life? The other thing is to know that the Lord loves us enough to tell us the truth even when we don't want to hear it. Have you ever maybe sat with someone or, or talked to someone and you had to have a difficult conversation and they might be sitting there shaking their head, agreeing, but you can just see it, Right? It's going right over their head. They just don't want to hear it. And I think, and why do we do that? Like, we're, we're saying that in love to the person, and so does the Lord to us. When he addresses sin, it's because he loves us enough to tell us the truth. And so it shows us his heart. And think about this. This is almost connected to what we were talking a little bit about on Sunday. The Lord is willing to put his heart out there and willing to be rejected by those and, who say, no, you're wrong, 
right? That's not sin. He's willing to be rejected and cast down because he loves us that much to tell us the truth. And we see that even tonight. And it all starts for us, right? If you've been walking with the Lord, we know that he sanctifies us. He continually uh, makes us into the image of his son and by the power of his spirit. But, but maybe tonight you've never even accepted Christ and the Lord has been tugging on your heart and he's been convicting you of sin, right? Jesus said that, he, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, not sins, because we've all sinned, right? It's the sin that we've broken God's law. And maybe tonight, you, the Lord's just simply starting there, is that you need to come to Christ as your Savior, because we have no hope apart from him. But remember that the Lord is here, as, as we look at, start in chapter 4 tonight, he's speaking to the nation, right? And, and Hosea, I'm sorry, not the nation, but he's speaking through Hosea to the ten northern tribes, referred to as Israel or Ephraim, Ephraim, however you would like to pronounce it, because at this time, the kingdom is split, and, and Judah is in the south, and then we have the ten northern tribes up, up north. And so that's the context, that's the setting And so we start in verse 1. We see, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. So right there, the word charge. He's saying, this is my prosecution. This is the charge that I'm bringing against Israel. See, we don't like to talk about sin. We don't like to have those difficult conversations. But I'm thankful that God isn't like us. Right? It's easy. We think that the most loving thing to do is never to offend somebody. Well, because, if, see, if I'm not willing to offend somebody by telling them the truth of something hard, that's the epitome of self-love, isn't it? That's really a love for myself. But God's not like that. His heart for us, for Israel, is that they would repent and turn to him. But look at this as he goes on in verse 1. He says, there is no truth or mercy were knowledge of God in the land by swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Uh, what that phrase there means, it's, it's saying like from one murder to the next. There's no even break in between. It's like one constant bloodshed after another. He says, therefore, verse 3, the land will mourn and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and with and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So notice he says in verse 2 that there is no knowledge of God in the land. Well, this is Israel. They have the law. They have the feast. They have the, the, the Sabbath days, these traditions, right? So for them, there's a knowledge. There's an intellect that they have. And we're going to talk about this a lot today. There's an intellect, right? There's this, of course, I know the facts, They might even be able to quote some of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Maybe they had it memorized. They knew about God. But when the Lord is saying here that they don't know, there's no knowledge of God, he's saying that there's no knowledge in the the sense of intimacy. There's no relationship with him. It it, It doesn't go beyond just the facts, right? That that's what he's getting at. There's no truth, he says in verse 2, or there's no standard of God's law. He also says in verse 2, there's no mercy. 
See, God has shown mercy upon them, and, and they should then in response show mercy upon others. So they could go through the, right, all the rituals that they needed to fulfill. They could check their boxes off, that they read their Bible, that they came to church. Maybe they even gave money, but they didn't know God. And remember Jesus said in, in John, he says that this is life, that you know him. Right? Life isn't, isn't an intellectual, religion is just knowing the information. But true life, eternal life, is to know Christ as our Savior. And see, that's the difference between religion and what God desires for us. God desires to know you, to converse with you, to sit with you in, in, in your hurt and your heartbreak and your joys because he loves you. And the Bible shows us this picture clearly. Remember in Ephesians, where uh, the Apostle Paul there, he says that, that we are the bride of Christ, right? Think, if, if I were just Olivia and I being married, if it was just our relationship was intellectual knowledge only, I just knew about her. I knew that she was blonde. I know that she likes ice cream. I know that her birthday's coming up. I, I know how tall she was. I could know all this stuff, but if there's no relationship do you, do you see how just weird that is? And that's not really, um, that's, that's shallow. See, God desires to know you. But he also, the sweet thing is he wants you to know him. And how amazing it is to think that, that he wants to share his heart with you. He, he just wants to talk with you. You know, how was your day? Because he just loves you. He doesn't need anything from us. But, but this wasn't present. There was no knowledge of God. See, when there's a knowledge of God, when there's that relationship, the mercy will follow. The, God's, the truth will follow, the truth of who he is. It impacts our lives, our, our, our life. And, and, and that, that internal reality changes everything in our life. Do we know him tonight that way? Is it just, I, I, I know about him, I can tell you that he is the Savior, or do you, do you really know him? And it starts by submitting your life to Christ. And maybe, you know, there was a time in your life where you could say, well, you know, I've been walking with the Lord, or I accepted Christ, but I, I don't have that same relationship. Well, tonight, just come back to him. Just say, Lord, I, I'm sorry. Just simply come and, and sit with him. But he goes on here in verse 4. He says, Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. And what he's saying here is actually referencing Deuteronomy 17, verse 12. And in Deuteronomy 17, 12, it says that if, if um, a person, if the priest were to bring a charge or, or um, if they were to make a decree from the Lord, right, and, and the person were to contend with them or they're just to outright rebel, say, forget you, I'm just going to go do what I want. And the Lord says there that that person's to be put to death. So, Check this, look, look what he's saying. He keeps going on. So that's the context. He says, therefore, you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night. I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten 
the law of your God, I will also forget your children. And what he's saying here, even in this, right, that they, they know the law. That's, that's why he's referring back to it, that, that if they were to contend with the priests, that they were to be put to death. And they would say that. They would point to others and say, yeah, that's the fact. But look, he, he says even their, um, their priests and their prophets are, he's saying that the ones who are to know the law, the ones who give the law, are, are like the ones who are just rebelling against it. And you say, okay, well, I'm not a good thing that I'm not, um, I'm not a priest or a priestess, priestess, how do you say that, priestess, there we go, priestess, or I'm, maybe I'm not the one, right, in formal ministry, I'm not a pastor or missionary. Well, do you know, uh, you actually are, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 2.9 that you are a royal priesthood, all of us who are in Christ. So the context, what he's saying here is that we're to know the truth, and, and, and it's so easy to say, right, well, that person, yeah, they, they shouldn't be doing that, or they don't know God that way, or that person shouldn't be in that sin. Instead of pointing it, the outward to others, examine our own hearts, because it's so easy to see it in others. Examine ourselves, because he, see, in verses five through six, their refusal to obey the light given to them has caused them to stumble, even in the daytime, even in the light. You see, the more and more that we know of God, the more that he gives to us, we're held accountable for what he's given to us. Do you remember Jesus said that? He said that to whom much is given, much is required. And so we've been given light. We've been given his word. You've sat under the teaching of the word of God. And so just to simply gather it and to say, I have the light of the word, but not to walk in it, the Lord warns us that greater our fall will be. And even tonight, right? If you've never accepted Christ tonight, you know the gospel, it's been shared. So we're that much more responsible to, to obey it. But nevertheless, in Proverbs 4, verses 18 and 19, the Lord says there, But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They don't even know what makes them stumble. You see, when the wicked, he's saying that they're tripping up. They can't can't even walk without falling, and, and they have no idea what it even is. And it's because they're not walking in the light. And we know that that light is Christ. But, but it reminds me of what Paul said in Romans. You can turn there with me if you want, but Romans chapter 1. If not, that's okay. I'll read it. But listen to the parallel here and how similar this is to what um, Hosea's writing to the people. But Paul says this in Romans 1. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Notice what he says that they do. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They've been given the truth, but they suppress it. They, they, they push it down as the idea. They're rejecting it. Verse 19, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that, notice, they are without excuse. They've been given the light. Verse 21, because although they knew God, notice there's a knowledge, right? They know the facts. 
They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, notice they became fools. Do you see that connection to Proverbs 4 there? They, they, they had this knowledge, they rejected it, and they became foolish, stumbling. And they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of the hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the, for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to vow passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature, so homosexuality. Verse 27, likewise, also men leaving the natural use of women burned in their lust for one another, men uh, with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the heir which is due. But check this out, verse 28, this is where I wanted to get to. It says there that even they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, so God gave them over to debased minds, to do those things which were not fitting. What Paul's saying there is that they've been given the truth. They've been given the light. They know the truth. But in verse 28, he says that they did not retain, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. The idea is that they're, they have this knowledge and they're testing it out. Well, do I really want to submit my life to Christ they know it. They're weighing it in the balances and they're rejecting it. That's what he's, they're doing. And that's the same idea of what is going on in Israel with Hosea. They have the light. They have the knowledge. They could say all the facts, but they didn't want to accept the Lord as the Lord of their life. They wanted other lovers. So they refused God testing them. <laughs> So keep going on verse 7 of Hosea chapter 4. He goes on, he said, The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory to shame. See, notice this. The word says the glory of God, the weightiness, what, what really matters, the substance, right? To know him. That glory has been exchanged for the shame of idols. See, when we reject God, we give ourselves to shame. Do you know that? When you say no to the Lord, you're saying yes to something. And the end of those things, ultimately, whether it's an idol, whether it's a sin habit, whatever it may be, the end result is shame. But Christ has come, hasn't he, to take our shame. He, he bore our shame, everything that we've done, all the sins on the cross. And he said, here's my righteousness. And there's no more shame. We'll never be ashamed to be called his son or his daughter. There's no more charge that can be brought against us. But if we reject the Lord, just like Israel, we are exchanging what we could enjoy, the weight, the substance of God, for shame. Notice verse 8. He says there, even they eat up the sin of my people and they set their heart on iniquity. That's a weird verse if you look at it at first. But remember, what would happen at that time when, when you would sin, when I would sin? What would the Lord require us to do? Remember, you had to bring a sin offering, uh, some, some type of sin offering to the priest at the temple, confess, right? 
your sins. And, and there's that, it was a covering looking forward to Christ. But he's saying here that the priest, um, those in the ministry were so corrupt that they, would, they loved when the people sinned because they got more food. They got more sacrifices that they could eat. See, it was all about themselves. They didn't care about the people. And this makes me think, you know, what about some ministries today? Do they care about the people? And maybe it's all about, you know, I won't address sin, but I'll just let the people keep coming, be comfortable, because I get and get and get. But that was the corruption at, at that time. Notice in verse 9, he, he goes on and he says, and it, ha- and it shall be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and, their reward for, and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough, and they shall commit harlotry, but not increase, because they have ceased to obey God. Notice in verse 9, he says there that like people, like priests, the people, the priests would come from the people, and even um, those who they desired there would, would be just, we, we're seeing it steeped in sin, not really seeking God. And, and we face that same thing today, don't we? Do you remember Pastor Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4? He says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires they have itching ears, and they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Beware of that. Do I want to hear the truth even? Or I'm looking for people in my, am I setting up people in my life that will just tell me what my, scratch my ear, tell me what I want to hear. And notice in verse 10, what promise to satisfy them, their sin, their, their, their harlotry, these other idols, the word says it failed to deliver. And isn't that what sin always does? It, promises to satisfy it promises to fulfill that longing to heal that hurt but it never does see only the lord in obedience out of relationship with him will ever satisfy us that's what solomon the wisest man to ever live said at the end of ecclesiastes didn't he so if you have kids you can ask them about that because they're studying that that book but the word here so this is his charge look you're guilty you don't want to, you don't know me. And now he describes their idolatry in detail in verses 11 through 14. Notice there, he says, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. How stupid is that? The Lord's saying that they think that a rod is going to speak to them, they think that this little wooden image these pagan idols that they worship is going to guide them, we would agree that that's just absurdity. And yet, it's, it's around us. Right? What's the, what's the thing that they put in the newspaper with the stars, the zodiac signs or whatever it is? Horoscope. I mean, come on. When we have the opportunity to, do you see the difference is you have the opportunity to, to come and speak with the living God, but if I'm going to come and speak to him, he has to be the living God. And if he's the living God, then I have to submit my life to him. Or else I reject him. And I go after these other gods. That's what they were doing. 
That, that's where they have fallen. But he goes on, um, the, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against um, their God. Verse 13, they offer sacrifices on mountaintops, and they burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and uh, terebinths. Because their shade is good, therefore your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. So there was still much religious activity. There was these sacrifices that were happening. Man, they even had some nice facilities maybe up on the, up on the mountain where, the, where there was shady, right? They, they could just be cool in the shade. But it was just religious activity. There was no truth there. So religious activity doesn't equal relationship with God. And notice verse 14, he says, I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with harlots, and they offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. And what in the world is he saying there? He's saying, see, there's this idea that they would only um, punish the women who were committing these acts. The, the adultery and the harlotry. But the Lord's saying, you're worried about them. What about the men? So he's holding them accountable. He's holding them accountable to sin. Remember, that, that's what the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. Do you remember that there was a woman who was caught in adultery? And they brought her before Jesus. But they didn't bring the man. Because the Bible says, in the Old Testament, that both they were to bring the man and the woman because they weren't concerned about truth. But God says, I'm not going to let one go because I'm concerned about truth. He always has to be truthful. So verse 15 through 19, now the Lord starts to speak to Judah. So this is kind of almost an aside, right? So Hosea is addressing the 10 northern tribes, but now the Lord realizes even the proximity, right? And no doubt there were still some who would travel down to Jerusalem, down into um, Judah to make sacrifices and to go to Jerusalem, right? They were related, ultimately. But nevertheless, the Lord's addressing Judah, also warning them. In verse 15, he says, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Or don't follow after Israel is the idea. That's what, that's what the Lord's saying. Don't come up to Gilgal. So he's saying to Judah, don't go up to these, he's going to list two, two different places. Because remember, they were the king uh, Jeroboam up north, he set up these uh, two different uh, uh, places to worship the golden calves. So he's saying, don't go up to Gilgal, where this idol worship center was, nor go to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, as the Lord lives. Well, Gilgal, you've probably heard of that, but you probably have never heard of Beth-Avon before. That's because it's not a real place. Um, it's actually referring there to Bethel. But the word changed the name. Do you know what Bethel means? House of God, yeah. House of God. The word's saying don't even call it House of God. Call it Beth-Avon. Beth or that, that literally means House of Vanity. Because, see, this golden calf, what, what they were doing, what they were pursuing is vanity. There's no reality there. God didn't even want his name associated with it. But he continues on. He says, verse 16, For Israel is stubborn like a stubborn calf. 
Now the Lord will let them forge like, <laughs> this is interesting, like a, like a lamb in op- open country, Ephraim is joined to idols. Or they are fascinated. That's, that's what that word joined means. They're fascinated with idols. He says in verse 17, let them alone. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor and the wind has wrapped her up in its wings and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So notice here, the Lord says, Judah, even though that these are um, your kin, right? They're from the t- these 10 tribes. There was the 12 tribes that came out of Egypt. He says, don't go after them. Let them alone. G. Campbell Morgan, he says this. He says, God does not abandon the disloyal the disloyal must not enter, or excuse me, but loyal must not enter into the alliance with the disloyal. See, the Lord's commanding here, there's a time, right? When, when they have been warned, when God has sent his word to them, he's saying, let them go now. And even in letting them go, they're, they're bringing their own punishment upon themselves. Uh, Campbell Morgan goes on to say this. He says, the hour is coming The hour is here when loyal souls ought at last to stand separate from all complacency with any form of misrepresentation of God. Even though the the form be something or some new presentation of Jesus that denies the things of revelation, the call to separation does not include bitterness towards those from whom you separate, but a great love and compassion and courtesy. See, what he's saying is there's a time when we have to let them go. When, when, when we don't align ourselves with them, it's interesting, G. Campbell Morgan, he said, somebody asked him once, would you even stand on the same stage and like have a debate with a, um, a Jewish priest, rabbi, and a Buddhist monk? And he says, no, I, I don't want even the name of my God to be associated. They're, he's not on the same level because they aren't gods, what they're representing. But there's this time, but notice the heart there is that we're not to have a heart of bitterness because that's not God's heart when he lets them go. It's still a heart of love that they would return back to him. We better keep going or Jason's going to throw tomatoes. Chapter 5. Hear this, O priest. So now he's going he's to speak of coming judgment. Hear this, O priest. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For, your, for yours is the judgment because you have been a snare to Mizpah and the net spread on Tabor. The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. They re- Though I rebuke them all, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, o Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do, they do not direct their deeds towards, the turning, towards turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. Notice here in verse 3, God says that he knows Ephraim. He knows um, Israel, these ten northern tribes, who, who in verse 4 do not know him. He's confirming. He says, wait, there might be that knowledge, but God's even saying that, that you don't know me. And isn't that a, a warning that Jesus said that there will be many on that day who say, Lord, Lord, haven't I prophesied in your name? Haven't I done wonders and miracles and many good deeds in your name? And, and Jesus will say on that day, depart from me for I've never known you. Do you know him tonight? 
But verse 6 here, he goes on, and he he says, With their flocks and their herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. And I think this is interesting um, to know kind of the bigger context of what's going on. God's, we know that judgment ultimately will come as Assyria comes and carries them away. But do you know that, remember when we just studied through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah um, 29, God's, God speaks of that. And in, you all know the verse. I don't even have to say it. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you um, a hope or an expected end. But if you go on to, to read there, it, the, the context of the chapter is that God's saying that you're so infascinated with idols. You love them so much. It's so deeply rooted in you that I'm going to let you be taken away so that you'll be so fed up with idols you'll never want to turn to an idol again. That's the hope in the future that God says he has for them, to deliver them. And, and that's what God's saying here, right? They'll seek me, but they won't find me. God's going to let them be carried away that they might be ultimately healed and turned to him. But he goes on in verse 7. He says, They have dealt treacherously with the Lord, and for they have forgotten, or excuse me, for they have begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage, Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah and the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel I make, uh, I make known what is sure. The priests of Judah are like those who remu- remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precepts. That what, what is that referring to? They, they willingly went after um, and worshipped at these idols, these golden calves that were set up, the king in First Kings 12. You can go and read that. But notice in verse 12, he says, Therefore I will be uh, to Ephraim like a moth, and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and they sent to King Jareb. Yet you cannot, yet he cannot cure you, nor heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. And I will take them away, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place, till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. And in their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. So notice here, there's three specific judgment that, judgments that God describes. Number one, did you see that he says, I will come to you like a moth? Now what does a moth do? This is funny because Britt's pajamas right now that he has on, his, his onesie, um, we pulled it out one day and it has like all these, it has like five or six like tiny little holes like in random places. And I think it's because a moth must have been um, eating away at it. I don't know what else it would be. Um, but that's what a moth does, right? It's quiet. You don't even know it's there until that one day. It start, it's starting just to almost rot or to be eaten away. And God says that this is that judgment. Even right within, there was the, they were rotting from within, from their sin. He also says that he will come upon them like a young lion. And the young lion, right, tears. It rips. It's violent. It's evident when a lion has come. And then finally he says by leaving them. 
See, there may be some sin that you're playing with, yet God's judgment has started like the moth. But God wants to deal with you privately in your own heart before it's evident like the lion. God wants to deal with us in the private of our own heart, that we would repent and turn to him. Yet God's discipline um, with Israel and with us, that they would ultimately turn back to him. But did you notice that Israel here, the word says that you look to Assyria, you look to all these other nations, but you're not looking to me. And we talked about that. Because if I look to the Lord, and if, and, if, and if he truly is who he says he is, then I have to submit my life to him. Then I'm accountable for my sin. But they refuse to do that. And he describes his plan here in, in leaving them. And I like Campbell Morgan. He said this. He said, God never leaves man until he has left, until man has left God. God never leaves man until um, the Lord has exhausted every method of discipline. See, God doesn't forsake us per se, but we forsake God and we move away from him. You can consider his attributes, right? He's the same. He doesn't change. He's immovable. He's God. He's stable, powerful, loving, and merciful. And it makes me think of Jesus in Matthew 23. Remember there was, he looked at over Jerusalem. In, in uh, 23 verses 37 through 39, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, God was willing. Christ was willing but the people were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And isn't that what the Lord said there in verse 15? He says, I will return again to my place, notice, till they acknowledge their offense. Until they acknowledge him. Now we know that, right, from um, our study of end times, that when will this ultimately be fulfilled? during the millennial reign, right? After the tribulation, when Christ comes a second time and he sets up his kingdom. And remember, Zechariah 12 says that they will recognize Christ as the one, as the Messiah. And he will come and dwell with them. But isn't this sweet? Notice, God says that I, I, I will um, forsake them. I will leave them. But you see, there's this one word in verse 15. And it's the word until, or till, whatever your translation is. That's a word of grace, isn't it? God doesn't say, you've blown it, you've forsaken me, you've gone after other gods, you've created idols, you wanted nothing to do with me. Although all of that is true, God is saying, forgiveness, restoration is available to you. And until you want to recognize me, uh, I'll, I'll wait and I'll leave you alone. I'll leave you to your ways until. That's the grace of God. So we come to chapter six. So we saw God's charge in chapter four, right? Then we talked about his judgment that's to come in chapter five. But now notice chapter six is the words call to repentance. His call to repent, to turn. In verse one, he says, come. This is Hosea praying, Hosea talking to the people, come and let us turn to the Lord. Notice Hosea says us. 
He isn't self-righteous. He, isn't, he doesn't say, you return to the Lord, us. Let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will rise us up, that we may live in his sight. Verse 3, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. And he will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Man, how sweet is this? Hosea's prayer. See, God's correction of sin, when he disciplined, when he brings judgment, there's some tearing that happens. There's some wounding that sometimes occurs. See, before that, there can be a healing, before the tumor is removed, the cancerous tumor, before the artery is unclogged, or before they can um, stitch me up, sometimes, right, what they have to do is they have to go in and they have to cut open. And they, ha- they have to cut things out that don't belong there. And, and it's painful. But God's saying, right, this, this picture is God has torn, but he will also heal. God's, God's discipline, God's correction the ultimate end is healing. That's his heart. That's his goal. And so we oftentimes squirmish, when, man, when we talk about sin or when the Lord starts to convict us. That's what sometimes Britt likes to do. The other, a couple weeks ago, um, he was crawling over my back and he crawled on my back. And I'm not a tall guy, but I was laying on the floor. But he crawled and he went face planted right, right into the floor. And, and it, he, had his, he had his tooth up against his lip, and it was bleeding. And um, Liv was worried that we were going to have to go to the hospital. She was worried. It was really funny. She, I don't think she'll care that I tell you this. I hope not. <laughs> she, thought, she thought his one tooth was like halfway up higher than the other one. It was, but it, it wasn't. It was, anyways, you know, you're freaking out in the moment. But we, we try to, what do we try to do? We're, we're pulling him aside. We're trying to put ice on him, right, to assess the wound, to see how bad it is giving him some cold things to suck on just to alleviate the pain. But what does he do? That's the last thing he wants. He's squirming. He's trying to get out of it. He, he doesn't want to be there. But yet he doesn't know that that's what's good for him. And see, the Lord says the same thing with us. I mean, he starts to convict us and I squirm. And instead of sitting there and letting, be, letting him be honest and being honest before the Lord and confessing, meaning agreeing with the Lord about that sin, I go and run to talk to somebody else, Right? I go find other problems. I, I go do whatever just to, so I, I don't have to worry about that and I don't have to let the Lord touch that. When he's saying, if you would just let me, yeah, yes, there, there is that wounding that happens, but I, I, I want to heal you of sin. I, I want to I address that in a loving way. And I'm so thankful for the book of Proverbs where in chapter 27, verse 6, it says there, faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. See, Jesus calls you and I his friends. You know who else he called his friend? Abraham. You're in the same category as Abraham. But sometimes uh, there's a wounding that comes. See, but the person that just says everything's okay and lets us go on is deceitful, that kiss from them. And I'm so thankful that the one who, who convicts us the one who, who does the healing, you know, you think about a surgeon's hand, right, and how, how, how it has to be steady, has to be sure. 
right? They're valuable. And I, and I just think about as the Lord does that cutting in our life, right? what, do we see, what would we see in his hands? We would see the scars that held him on the cross as he died for my sins. See, and he's not condemning us, but he's saying, I've, I've taken this, I've died for this, and I've freed you from it. So let me do this, right? And, and so even when those wounds are coming, we can look at his hands and be reminded of that. So verse 4, he says, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like the, a morning cloud, and it's like the early dew. It goes away. It, it appears for a moment, but it's not, it's not, there's no lasting reality. It fades away, even with the heat of the day. Remember the p- parable of the sower that Jesus said? That some seed are, uh, seeds are sown, right? Somebody hears the gospel and they're all excited about it and they accept Christ. But, but there was no, it doesn't take root. There's no reality because when the heat of the day, because there's no root in it, when temptations come and tribulations, it burns away and it disappears. That's, that's what he, the idea of what, where he's going. Verse five, therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets and I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And your judgments are like the, are like light that goes forth. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Notice how sweet it is to see God's heart. He says, I desire to know you and to have a relationship with you, with the knowledge of God, more than what you and I can give to him. See, we think God is interested maybe in my wallet. Man, I gotta go give again. We feel obliged. Or I gotta go to church. I gotta give him my time. Those are, see, when we know God, that's the outflow of knowing him. But, but nevertheless, um, he says that I, I desire that knowledge more than burnt offering. Um, the morning cloud, the, the, the dew, they look nice, right? There's a glimmer to them, but I was mentioning earlier, there's no lasting reality. They fade. And this describes the person who has an emotional response to the Lord, but it doesn't go beyond that. <laughs> G. Campbell Morgan, he's amazing in this book. He says this. He says, uh, feeling eviscant, I've never heard that word. I had to look it up. Or, or what he's saying is feelings quickly fade when it fails to strike downward to the facts producing it. And, though, and facing those facts... Uh, you arrange your life in harmony therewith. A superficial uh, grasp upon the truth concerning God will produce feelings, admiration, aspiration, intention. But unless we turn round and facing these facts, see their bearing upon life and act accordingly, goodness will ever fade as the morning cloud and the early dew. So he's saying, if I, if, if I just have this, if, if I just agree with the facts, but I, there's nothing beyond that. There's nothing that I do to change and to align my life with those realities. That emotional response that we have tonight or, or when you go to church and you're in that worship service, it, it fades. Right? right? And if, like the songs that we sing, if my life aren't re, um, are, isn't in line with those truths. And so, yes, maybe, maybe there's areas where they're not. But if I don't do something about it, if I don't respond to the word of God, if, I, if it's just knowledge, if I'm just hearing it, it's just going to fade. And I don't want my life to be a glimmer of a cloud. Do you? 
I want it to be planted. And I want it to bring forth fruit. And, and we can know that as we turn to him. As we submit to Christ as Lord, not just saying that he's Lord, but when we say Jesus is Lord, that we really make him Lord of our life. No superficial knowledge. So he goes on here, verse 7, he says, but like men or like Adam, they transgressed the covenant, so they willingly broke the covenant. They dealt treacherously with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers and defiled with blood. See, Gilead was one of the cities of refuge, or it's to be a Levitical city where the, where the priest lived. And he's saying, even where the priests live, it's defiled. Sin is seeped deep. Verse 9, as band of, bands of robbers lie in wait for a man, so the company of priests murder on their way to Shechem. Surely they, co- they commit lewdness. See, I've seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There was harlotry, or the adultery of Ephraim. Israel is defiled. Also Judah, a harvest is appointed for you when I return the captives of my people. So we see this, this judgment that God has upon them. And notice now in verse 7, excuse me, chapter 7, is God's call to repentance. He, he continues on. He, verse 1, he says, uh, When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim was uncovered and the wickedness of Samaria. For they have committed fraud. A, th- a thief comes in. A band of robbers takes spoil outside. They do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own deeds have surrounded them, and they are before my face. They make a king glad with their wickedness and princes with their lies. The Lord's just saying here, he's saying, repent. All of this is open before me. What you might have covered is open. He knows. He's calling them to repent, to turn to him. Verse 4, they are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by a baker, he causes stirring, uh, or excuse me, he ceases stirring the fire after kneading the dough until it is leavened, right? We don't do that today. We have a gas stove or an electric stove that you just turn on the knob and it heats up. But back in at that time, you would have to stoke a fire. You'd have to make sure that it's hot enough. You'd have to keep putting wood on it and, and moving, moving it around, stoking it. And so he's saying, that this is what the people are doing. It's like their sin is so deep within them. It's like that baker who gets their fire ready. He has the coals ready to go. And notice verse 5, they're wait, or excuse me, at the end of verse 4, and they're waiting until it's 11, this bread. In verse 5, he goes on, in, in the day of our king, princes have made him sick and flamed with wine. He stretched out their hand with scoffers. They prepare their heart like an oven while they lie in wait. The baker sleeps all night, and in the morning it burns like a flaming fire. He's saying that that's their heart. It's like that baker who has their oven ready, and they're waiting all night so they could um, wake up early and make um, bagels and, and the loaf of bread that we get at Walmart, right? That anticipation. The, the people, they just can't wait to, to give themselves and live in sin. Verse 7 uh, they were hot, hot like an oven and, they, and have devoured their judges. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls upon me. Ephraim has mixed himself among the peoples. Ephraim is a cake unturned, but he does not know it. Or, sorry, verse 9, aliens have devoured his strength, but he does not know it. 
His gray hairs are here and on him, yet he does not know it. What's that speaking of? Well, see, these aliens that have devoured their strength, sin has devoured their strength. Think, think about, you remember somebody else who that happened to in the Old Testament? Remember Samson? It says that when he awoke, he kept messing with sin, right? And he awoke, and, and he went out after his locks were cut, his hair was cut, And he went out as before. He didn't even realize that the Lord had departed from him. And when it says there, the gray hairs are here and and there on him, and he does not know it, they've become weaker. They don't even realize it. They don't know their own state. See, that's what God's heart is. His heart is not to condemn them, but his heart is to wake up. This is the state that you're in. Repent. Verse 10, and the pride of Israel testifies to, to his face but they do not turn to the Lord their God. They were turning, remember, but they were turning to Assyria, not to the Lord, nor seek him for all of this. Ephraim also is like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. Whenever they, wherever they go, I will spread my net on them and I will bring them down like the birds of the air. I will chastise them according to what their congregation has heard. Notice he's saying that they can go to these other nations, they can turn to whomever or whatever they want, but God's judgment is still going to come. He's still going to bring his net upon them. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have fled from me, destruction to them, because they have transgressed against me. Though I redeemed them, yet they have spoken lies against me. They did not cry out to me with their heart when they wailed upon their beds. Can you imagine that? Right? Somebody who's just sitting there wailing because of the destruction, because of the hurt of, of sin. Yet God says, you're crying out, but you just have not cried out to me. You have not looked to me. They refused. Verse 14, he goes on. They assemble themselves together for grain and new wine. And they rebel against me. Uh, what he's saying is there is that when they assemble themselves, it's actually that they cut themselves. Uh, so, so they were cutting themselves, trying to um, look for help to, to appease even these other gods. Though I disciplined them, verse 15, and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They return not to the Most High. They are like a treacherous bow. Their princes shall fade or fall by the sword, and their for the cursings of their tongue, they shall be de- their, excuse me, this shall be their derision in the land of Egypt. So we see even in, in verse 14, uh, just going back, the whole picture here is right, their insincerity for their cry of help. They wanted help, but they didn't want the Lord's help. And we keep going back to this, right? They knew that they were in trouble. They turned to these other nations, but they didn't want to turn to the Lord. Now, let's just close with this. Um, Go to the left here and just reminding ourselves of the heart of God and go to Isaiah. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 30. And if you go, just for time's sake, um, I'd encourage you just to go and to read this whole chapter. Here Isaiah even um, 
he, he's saying in, in Isaiah 30 that they, they're looking to other, they're looking to Egypt, uh, they're, they're turning to other nations for help. In verses 8 through uh, down to about 17, he's talking about the rebellious people. But I just want to look together with you tonight in verse 15, closing it out with this. Seeing, seeing the heart of Israel, see, God was simply waiting for them. And oftentimes, right, even, even in Christianity, even when we're walking with God, or maybe you don't know God, you're saying, well, I'm just waiting for God to write my name in the sky, then I'll know that, that he truly is God. Or, or, Lord, I'm waiting for you to come through with that job, right? Then I'll submit my life to Christ, because I know that you, who are, you are who you say you are. Or sometimes, maybe even in our, in our walk with the Lord, those who have given our lives to Christ, right? We're, we're waiting on God to do all these things, and, and, and we're moving around, and, and we're, we have our busy activities. But look, at, look with me in verse 15. This is the Lord's response to kind of the same situation, a similar situation. He says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, And returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And, and we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee. Till they are left as a, as a pole on the top of a mountain, as a banner on a hill. But check this out. Therefore, in verse 18... Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. See, God is simply just waiting. God was waiting for Israel to turn to him. He says, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm willing. My heart is to be gracious to you, to forgive and to heal. But will you turn to him? And the same question is for us. If you've never given your life to the Lord, the Lord's waiting. He's saying, I'll be gracious to you. Just come and, and, and come to me. Come to Christ. And, and for some of us, right, with different things going on, and as the Lord's maybe addressing sin in our lives, we, we run to other things or we think something else is going to heal us from that hurt that we have. But God's just saying, I'm waiting. That I can be gracious to you. So I don't know uh, where you are tonight, but... If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. If you, know, if you don't know Christ and you want to give your life to him, please come and talk to one of us. Talk to the person next to you. Or if you just need to spend a few minutes tonight just waiting on the Lord because he's waiting for you, I'd encourage you to do that. You know, you can come up front and um, we won't disturb you. You can just sit in prayer with your, the word of God open and just wait to see and hear from him what he might show you, what he might speak to you tonight. And so, Father, even, even seeing this and knowing, Lord, we, we just ask that you would, um, would show us if there's anything tonight that, Lord, that you're waiting um, on us for. Lord, and we're sorry for um, everything else that we run to, God, that we think is going to heal or to change or to, to um, give us satisfaction, God. We could just confess, Lord, I confess that, that I do that. Lord, but tonight, we don't want to go another day, Lord, of you waiting. Thank you for being patient, Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would um, just meet us tonight, Lord, wherever we are, Lord, that no one would leave tonight without doing business with you. 
God, we thank you for your word that reveals the truth of who you are, that we don't have to be deceived, but that we can know you, and God, that we can hear from you in, in your heart, God. And I thank you, God, that you know our heart more than anybody else knows. Lord, you know our thoughts afar off. Lord, you know our sitting down and our standing up. And yet, Lord, you still love us, even though you see the blackness of, of what's in there. So I thank you for that, that type of love, which, which is uncomparable. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And we said, amen, amen.